You are listening to Money on the Left, a monthly interdisciplinary podcast that reclaims money's public powers for imaginative intersectional politics, proudly presented in partnership with Monthly Review Online. I'm Billy Sauce with Scott Ferguson and Max Seha. We speak this month to Frederick Heine, University Assistant at the Institute for Women's and Gender Studies at Johannes Kepler University, Linz, and author of the excellent and incredibly timely essay out just this summer in the Journal of Cultural Economy titled Performing Hard Money, Monetary Policy, Metaphor, and Masculinity in the Making of EMU. In that essay, Heine analyzes the cluster of masculine metaphors that ground and mobilize the European Monetary Union's, or EMU's, hardline opposition to soft money politics. At the time of this episode's publishing in early September 2022, what Heine classifies as the masculine performative agency of EMU leaders can be seen all over Europe, with, for example, Macron decrying the end of abundance and the ECB signaling pretty clearly a coming period of sacrifice and austerity across the Eurozone. Hard times, we are meant to understand, require hard leaders. We speak with Heine about this essay as well as his broader inquiry into the intersections of gender, global finance, and political economy. It was a real treat speaking with Frederick, and we thank him for joining us. As a heads up, early in the episode, there's a line or two of Frederick's speech that gets scrambled by our poor Zoom connection. Happily, that's the only instance, and the rest of the chat comes through clear as it could be. Thank you to Megan Sauce, Scott Ferguson, and Dahl E2 for this month's incredible and incredibly upsetting graphic to mercedes olin for the transcripts and to nanin kula for the theme tune if you'd like to support our work at the money on the left editorial collective that is this podcast superstructure and medium femme please consider subscribing to our patreon which is linked to in the show notes frederick heine welcome to money on the left Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining us. So maybe to kick things off, you can tell our listeners a bit about your background, uh, be it personal or professional or both, uh, and ultimately what brought you to the study of gender, culture, and political economy. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, I'm currently working as a lecturer or university assistant um, at the Johannes Kepler University Linz uh, at the Institute of Women's and Gender Studies. Um, uh, My background is I kind of did a PhD at the University of Warwick um, for a few years. (laughs) And before that, I did a master's in in global political economy at the University of Sussex. yeah, basically that's sort of my uh, academic uh, sort of background. And I started uh, studying at the Free University of Berlin. And, and this is basically also the place where I got very interested uh, in gender, in political economy, uh, basically at the Otto Institute uh, for Political Science. Um, it was a very capture of, uh, of sort of yeah, political economy, Marxism, um, feminism, um, and yeah, let me to kind of ask all these questions. Um, and at the same time, shortly after I started, uh, there was also the beginning of the first signs of the global financial crisis kind of um, kicking in. So that was a big part of me trying to 
being very interested in trying to understand what was happening there. Um, and at the same time, maybe uh, gender and masculinity has been something that had been a little bit more uh, permanent in my background. Um, so, I mean, I needed the inspiration by by the sort of uh, uh, feminist kind of uh, flair at, at the university. Um, but then I started uh, questioning masculinity and uh, relating it back to my own experiences um, of, of gender masculinity. Uh, some gender-related bullying in my youth. And uh, so when I came across uh, Raymond Cornell's work on hegemonic masculinity and subordinate masculinities and kind of uh, masculine uh, hierarchies of masculinities, um, I, yeah, that was very much a game changer uh, in kind of understanding my own identity and also my place within a sort of the larger um, gender structures in, in, in some ways. Um, but at the same time, um, yeah, masculinity was ambivalent because at the same time, um, as an assigned male at birth with a more masculine self-presentation, I also um, experienced it very much as a, a privilege, uh, especially in combination with uh, whiteness, uh, for example, as the attribution and assumption of competence uh, and even some level of authority sometimes now that I get uh, older, which seems um, a little absurd at times, um, but in any case, uh, so it kind of the background. On the one hand, there was were these sort of big macro events like the global financial crisis that I was trying to understand, and on the other hand, this sort of um, understanding of my own identity within that context, and I think the tension between those uh, macro events and identity and subjectivity, on the other hand, kind of was what maybe always. Um, kept me in this uh, sort of uh, interest about how gender and political economy uh, sort of relate, especially then, of course, when I discovered uh, feminist political economy as a sort of um, sub-discipline as well. Um, and yeah, so especially then when I uh, came to the UK and discovered um, IPE and complexity and diversity of approaches there, uh, and feminist IP in particular, um, that kind of uh, yeah shaped a lot the ways in which I was also approaching these these questions. Basically, IPE IPE is international. Oh, sorry, economy. international political. Economy. Yeah, yeah, just for the people following along who maybe yeah. don't know the jargon. No, of course, of course, yeah, um, yeah. But that's basically how I I got into these these questions, these topics. <laughs> Thank you for that that really great answer. Um, we've come to your work by way of uh, an article you've published very recently in the Journal of Cultural Economy titled Performing Hard Money, Monetary Policy, Metaphor, and Masculinity in the Making of EMU. I wonder if by way of starting a conversation and making sure that we all have a kind of common ground or grammar to work with, could you share with listeners who may not know what the EMU is, what it is, and where it came from, and maybe its role in shaping the neoliberal project in Europe and beyond. Sure. Um, okay, so the European Monetary Union, the EMU, basically um, is uh, the monetary aspect of European integration. So it's the institutional 
um, kind of context for the single currency that probably all uh, listeners know, which is the euro, um, which is uh, a currency that was first originally meant as a currency for the whole European Union at the time, but a number of countries decided not to participate or haven't adopted uh, the euro yet. Um, the European Monetary Union is uh, governed by the European system of central banks, uh, comprised of national central banks, and at their top, the European Central Bank. Um, and the idea of some kind of monetary union um, to sort of um, pro proceed with uh, uh, economic integration and political integration has been a long time in the making. Um, with first proposals uh, in the 1970s, um, and there has been ever closer uh, European economic and political integration um, as a sort of background um, to these uh, proposals that meant that a single currency seemed desirable uh, for economic and political um, reasons. And even before the European Monetary Union as well, there had been several attempts to um, to kind of reduce uh, currency fluctuations between European Union and European Commission member states, um, sorry, European Community member states, um, trying to keep exchange rates and inflation rates somewhat aligned, um, mostly to, to foster trade and investment, um, mutual investment. Um, and that had been sort of the case ever since the uh, collapse of the Bretton Woods system of uh, fixed exchange rates. Um, and sort of this is uh, sort of the maybe background why the project was was taken in the first uh, instance. Um, and ultimately this process accumulated in suggestion of a European monetary union, a single currency, and so on. And uh, the crux, however, is not so much uh, in the fact that we do now have a, a currency union, but the, the kind of currency union we have. Um, so instead of an integration of financial policies and monetary policies, um, only the monetary policy is, is sort of Europeanized and, and institutionalized in the European Central Bank. Um, and while there are some restrictive rules for member states, um, which are also arbitrary rules um, for how much debt and how much deficit basically they can um, run. Um, there isn't a political mechanism by which, uh, for example, an expansionary fiscal policy approach could be coordinated. Um, and worse, there's also um, partly on the insistence of, of the Bundesbank about which we will talk about, um, uh, there's the uh, no bailout clause um, that forbids the European Central Bank to act as a lender of a last resort for member states. So um, the monetary union ended up as a setup that works okay in normal times, um, but in times of uh, crisis, seriously limits the room uh, for maneuver. Um, for example, um, the demand-led recovery uh, from crisis. And we know all this because of um, what actually happened in the uh, Eurozone crisis from 2010 onwards. So it's, uh, yeah, what we uh, experienced as a result of that. And how have, how have critics and, and critical scholars engaged with this, uh, with the EMU previously? 
Uh, yes, basically, I mean, um, there have been sort of a lot of, there has been a lot of attention also, especially since uh, the Eurozone crisis um, on, on the kind of institutional side of, of the European Monetary Union. And, and you know, there's some, some kind of uh, literature that looks at the evolution of the European Monetary Union and sort of kind of regards it more or less as institutional flaws in the institutional design of the monetary union, which was basically a result of um, political compromises between the main players, especially France, Germany, etc. Um, and, and sort of the power politics between the main major um, uh, nations. So this is the kind of intergovernmentalist um, approach to how uh, the European Monetary Union formed. Um, there is also a literature that kind of looks at the relevance of of ideas uh, and especially the kind of emerging um, neoliberal consensus, as it is called uh, by McNamara, for example, um, that uh, kind of looks at how in in the in the process of creating the European Monetary Union. Um, there was an increasing shift uh, towards the understanding that uh, a central bank should be independent, um, that the sort of nation states should have a limited amount room for maneuver to um, to run deficits, basically, um, that welfare states should be uh, reduced, um, uh, and yeah, all these kind of elements that are also part of the um, institutional setup of the European Monetary Union by design, by effect, basically. Uh, and that is also the focus of then a sort of interpretation that looks um, at the European Monetary Union, mostly as a result of, of class politics, basically, of, of, of an um, institutionalization of, um, um, of, of neoliberal principles by sort of constitutionalizing them by setting them up in the um, in the treaties um, of the European Union, um, therefore kind of making them uncontestable by um, the labor movement, especially, um, and and in by way of central bank independence and this kind of focus on um, price stability rather than um, like other central banks also kind of are concerned with uh, making sure that there's full employment or, or kind of levels of employment are as high as possible. Um, this is not um, within the remit of the East European Central Bank. Um, and so it's also seen as a way of um, kind of by way of monetary policy, also limiting the room for maneuver of um, trade unions uh, and the labor movement. So in your essay, uh you take up from a critical perspective what you call gendered performative agency. Can you define for our listeners um, gendered performative agency and why, on your reasoning, does it matter for critically understanding the EMU? Okay, thanks. Um, so one reason why I wanted to do this and, and one thing that I haven't seen in, in that literature that kind of looks at the evolution of um, of the European Monetary Union was basically to look at, you know, did gender play a role in all of this? Um, and so this, uh, I try to do this basically with um, that concept of gendered performative 
um, agency and it might get a bit abstract now, but basically I was looking for a way uh, to conceptualize how gender discourses and narratives um, might matter in economic governance. Um, and so uh, I tried to do this without reifying either, um, you know, what gender is or what what exactly the economy um, is uh, and rather understand it as the result of these kinds of um, processes. So very briefly, it's, it's a lens that focuses on how agents mobilize performances and constructions um, of masculinities and femininities in their political discourse, in their uh, practices um, to serve specific agendas within economic governance, so to speak. And I use the per term performative because um, in this way, uh, this process both describes the performances involved in it, so speeches, language, but also bodies, mannerism, dress, etc. Um, and because it invokes the concept of performativity. Um, that's the idea that um, language doesn't only passively represent the kind of things it describes, but it that it has at least some power in, in shaping it. So a very basic example would be that if a child is told um, that it has a certain gender at birth, and then later is told and demonstrated what it means to 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 be that gender, to to perform that gender, and then there is a likelihood that it will behave um, according to these ideas as well. Uh, although, of course, there's always a chance of failure uh, and of of sort of um, critical um, questioning of these. But basically, the idea. Um, is is that that language doesn't just represent something that is outside of it, but does create uh, basically what it describes in some ways, uh, and through mechanisms of social practices. Uh, and this idea has been developed uh, in relation both to gender, famously by Judith Butler, um, as the listeners will probably know, um, and also uh, in relation to the economy um, by scholars such as Michel Callan uh, and others. And so, in a sense. With this, uh, I try to capture how the economy is, is gendered through this kind of performative language. Um, and then I look at how um, these practices um, are very much um, leveraged by actors within economic governance, um, right? If, if you look at elite actors um, as the Bundesbankers, as, as I do in the paper, um, that have also kind of a lot of moral authority, as I would explain plain hopefully later um, so even though single actors always have uh, limited performative agency as, as butler argues um, they still have comparatively more than you know you and me um, for example um, and so i argue that um, this agency in performing the economy is, is gendered because gender is not always but but often a central component of our subjectivity um, and our worldviews, and even if we are not necessarily aware of it, um, it shapes, as for example, V. Spike Patterson argues, um, very deeply how we ascribe uh, cultural value, affective value to, to things, uh, simply because the dominant worldviews um, are very much gendered still. Uh, and for this, uh, studying how gendered meanings are mobilized, I basically um, look at language and, and metaphors mostly. Money make 
world go round, the world go round, the world go round. Money makes the world go round. It makes the world go round. A mark, a yen, a buck, or a pound, a buck. Or a pound, a buck, or a pound is all that makes the world go round. That clinking, clanking sound can make the world go round. I really want us to spend some time, uh, as you do in the paper, unpacking these metaphors, right? And and. Mm-hmm. Why metaphor and how, how are how are these what are the metaphors? How are they being mobilized? Uh, how do they how do they work through very often hierarchical binary oppositions that position certain terms as um, subordinate um, as as lesser um, and then also. Um, you know, how, how do these potentially change over time? But I also, maybe to, mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. things going, I just want to say one of the things that I appreciate so much, or one, one of the many things I appreciate so much about your work here is that very often we think, when we're thinking in terms of gendered performance or gendered performative agency, we're thinking about how broad social constructions social meanings discourses imagery etc um shapes the way that individual persons and bodies uh become legible right and i think and that that work is very important but what i see less (laughs) done but i see uh operative in your paper is to say no actually institutions that are irreducible to just, I mean, of course, it matters that these are men who are the presidents of the Bundesbank, who have this authority in the European Monetary Union. Um, And of course, their individual performativity and legibility matters. But it seems like you're arguing that the very, the the very kind of um, constitution of this vast institution, is is a kind of gendered performance is is that fair to say i think it is so so thanks first for for your thoughts and for your um uh yeah for for you kind of developing on 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 the ideas of the paper i think so what i basically try try to do yes is is to kind of see how uh basically the construction of certain institutions and certain um, cultural political economies um, as gendered is a process that is in principle contingent, right? So it does use, of course, um, the larger discourses and cultural um, and meanings ascribed to gender um, and mobilizes this uh, sort of, and it, that is only possible because there are shared um, understandings of um, of what gender is and how it matters, etc. Um, but the idea is very much um, kind of that how this is articulated in a specific context is is principally 
um, contingent um, and, and that there can be variations, there can be specific institutions that do this more than others. Um, and yeah, so so I think you you underst understood exactly what I what I uh, was what I'm what, what am I trying to do? Um, and yeah, so thanks for these uh, for these um, and thoughts. Um, but uh, yeah, so to go back to your first question, sorry, was there? Yeah, let's get into some of these yeah, metaphors. Exactly. I mean, let's, with the with the first uh, the first Bundesbank. President, I don't know if you want to talk about your archive a little bit more. What you're, right. what you're studying. Right, right, right. Um, so I was, I was going to start also a little bit with the background um, of why I think metaphors matter in um, the discourse of of these Bundesbankers. So basically, um, I mean, to talk about the archive is, is basically I looked at a lot of speeches, interviews um, that these Bundesbankers. Um, uh, did in the context of of the question, you know, how should uh, EMU be structured? Um, should it exist in the first place? Uh, and all these um, issues. Um, and in that context, I looked at the public performances and, and speeches that they uh, that they did. Um, and uh, so, sort of, on the one hand, right, some of that discourse is is pretty dry. Um, for the average uh, audience uh, member. Um, and so it might seem surprising um, that metaphors play a key role uh, here. But um, despite this sort of technical um, role that they often um, have, these uh, central bankers, um, it is curious that in the German public, um, they used to be uh, quite known, uh, quite important public figures. Um, Jacques Delors, for example, who was a very important figure in the EMU negotiations and the uh, president of the European Commission at the time, uh, he made the joke that not all Germans believe in God, uh, but all Germans believe in the Bundesbank. So that it had quite a, some, uh, yeah, a, a big cultural role within the in German polity. Um, and so, how is that possible for sort of technocrats in this sense? Um, and, and part of my argument is that it's because their discourse is not just um, this kind of economic technocratic um, discourse, but it's not just about economics, but it carries a sort of moral message. It carries an effective stance um, that is transported um, by, uh, and yeah, this is where the metaphors come in basically. So they help to imbue the speech and discourse um, with meanings um, borrowed from, from other source uh, domains. Um, and metaphor theory um, has shown uh, sort of that metaphors are also an, an important way in which cognition works. So we understand something in terms of something else that we already know, that we are already familiar with. Um, and metaphors can also mobilize affect and uh, motivation um, and borrow authority and legitimacy from the source domain. Um, and in the paper, basically, um, I argue that the Bundesbankers use a range of metaphors in their discourse on inflation and the necessity of price stability um, that they were sort of um, trying to uh, make sure that the EMU was, was going along this direction. 
Um, and I kind of examined these metaphors and I argue that the, the range of metaphors used basically weaves together a sort of tapestry that constructs a more or less coherent narrative of the moral story of um, why uh, price stability basically should be so important um, as to make it the cornerstone of, of the European Monetary Union. Um, and one element of this is how uh, inflation is, is described through the metaphor of temptation. Um, so this is something that seems uh, irresistible. Um, so this is literal, for example, um, when uh, Karl Otto Pöhl um, talks about the always lurking temptation uh, or related metaphors such as uh, a pinch of inflation or the drug of inflation and so on. Um, the most pointed one is when uh, Helmut Schlesinger, um, the, his successor, um, calls this the siren calls of inflation, um, a metaphor uh, that is then repeated a few times. Um, or, or back in the 60s, one of the first Bundesbank presidents called inflation a nymph that uh, doesn't contend itself with the light flirt. So we have here, what we have here is a, a discourse that compares inflation to something that um, equalizes uh, a sort of giving in to desires. Um, and in the Greek mythical figures of nymphs and sirens, uh, this is a sort of sexualized femininity that represents this temptation. Um, and, and we can imagine this temptation to the het assumed heterosexual men that are usually uh, the assumed subjects in this kind of uh, language as well. So it kind of um, plays on this uh, feminization, basically, of, of, of temptation. Um, and the assumed consequence of, of, this, uh, of these temptations, right, the following the songs of the sirens means uh, shipwreck, uh, flirting with a nymph uh, in this kind of uh, sort of mythic, mythological background means a threat of madness destruction, taking drugs means addiction, etc. Um, so these are all consequences of uh, losing um, self-control. And, and so the, the key to resisting that kind of temptation that inflation supposedly is, um, is the idea that uh, of self-discipline. So uh, self-discipline is regarded as the keynote uh, to not giving in to these uh, temptation um, to resist the temptations to walk the path, path of least resistance. Um, and all these kind of um, metaphors are also employed basically um, sort of to represent the remedy against the problem of the temptation um, of inflation. And, and so um, this discipline in relation to EMU, um, the metaphor is used um, to stress the importance of discipline on the bake, uh, on the side of um, member states, for example. Um, so uh, Pur evokes self-discipline um, on the one hand, on the part of member states. Uh, also market discipline is, is thought necessary uh, to, to kind of avoid these temptations. Um, market discipline basically is a result of investor behavior. Um, and then also external discipline um, through institutional mechanisms. Um, and the latter, especially the, the mechanism to, to kind of create discipline on the, on the 
um, on an institutional uh, side uh, was the focus very much um, of the Bundesbank, who argued that this uh, external discipline was required because member states uh, couldn't be trusted with this kind of um, self-discipline, nor could market actors uh, in themselves. Uh, and so the idea here is that there needs to be an authority that instills this um, discipline and that itself needs to be highly disciplined. Um, so, so these kind of um, binaries between um, temptation and discipline um, that kind of are connected uh, to femininity on the temptation side and masculinity um, on the discipline side um, were used by by Pearl to to argue um, yeah for for the kind of um, an EMU focused focused on instilling that kind of discipline um, and and it did so from the position of of a Bundesbank that sort of prided itself in in having that function within the German economy and, and kind of a, a sort of arguing that um, the uh, German um, economy has been much better placed to resist that kind of temptation um, uh, because of its uh, stability culture, as it is called uh, in these, um, in the language of, of the Bundesbank. And that stability culture itself then is the result of um, the, the past tough choices and tough cho policies of the Bundesbank. Um, so uh, again, we have here, or I'll come to that sort of set of uh, metaphors um, in a second. And basically I argue that these uh, metaphors of temptation and discipline reference um, uh, enlightenment as well as reformist ideals of masculinity of the composed rational subject um, that never strays from its mission, so to speak, that is always in control. And I also argue that these ideals of masculinity um, were particularly strong um, for reasons we might later go into in Germany, where the uh, idea of the rational will conquering the bodily temptations basically uh, was a key component of constructions of masculinity vis-a-vis um, -vis femininity on the one hand, uh, which was seen as much less um, able to control the self, the impulses, etc., um, in 19th century discourse, um, and therefore needed a male guardian in patriarchal ideology. And at the same time, it was also constructed in an emerging national discourse as something um, that distinguished Germans um, and the assumption here is, again, particularly German masculinity, which was often the focus of, of the national stereotypes as they developed um, in the 19th century. Um, and also from other nations within Europe, particularly France um, and Southern Europe as reference points. Um, and here, this was not only a nationalist discourse, but also related um, to the idea of race, because the idea of uh, rational self-controlled masculinity was also very prevalent in European colonial discourse, seen as a, as a key feature that was supposed to distinguish uh, white Europeans from people of color. Um, ultimately, uh, sort of this discourse was one of governance, right? So it justifies um, and legitimizes governing over others 
because one is able to demonstrate the ability to govern over the self. And that kind of is the, the sort of context in which this, this uh, self-discipline became central in, in these uh, self-representation subjectivities um, in that context. Um, and so another set of uh, stereotypically masculine traits that is also used uh, through metaphor in this context um, is uh, strength, uh, toughness, um, hardness uh, uh, that that kind of uh, they often use uh, to talk about currencies and to talk about um, basically uh, relationships to others. Um, so uh, when Schlesinger, for example, uh, frequently emphasizes that the European um, currency, the the euro needs to be at least as hard as the D-Mark. Um, this is on the one hand, common parlance in, in currency uh, trading. So a hard currency is one that um, sort of, uh, yeah, has, has a relative low level of inflation. Um, but it carries a potential metaphorical charge. Um, so uh, the Bundesbank was founded basically on the mantra of its first president, uh, who repeatedly said, with soft measures, you can't have a hard currency, uh, meaning basically uh, that you need to be tough and resilient for your currency to be um, to be hard as the result of the, the sort of toughness of, of the decisions that are being made. And the Bundesbankers themselves needed to perform this kind of um, toughness as well. Um, Schlesinger, for example, was asked whether he had turned into a softie when he was perceived as not defending the D-Mark enough, um, which Schlesinger then sought to strongly deny. Um, and uh, Tietmeier, who is the, the third um, Bundesbank president that I look at, um, kind of described himself as, as a, a tough oak, basically a Westphalian oak, to kind of instill this idea that um, he will be unwavering in the face of crisis and in the uh, yeah, sort of that, that there's this this level of of trust and and kind of resilience and resistance towards any sort of attempts from outside to influence um, the, the uh, decisions uh, that might be uh, might be present. And so you have on the one hand um, this reference to self-discipline, um, and on the other hand these references to toughness and hardness as as a sort of um, Badge of honor, basically, of of the uh, of the economy um, that is sort of masculinized in this discourse. Uh, for example, um, maybe I should add this here: um, is uh, Schumpeter, for example, described also the the idea that um, basically the monetary policy of a people um, kind of demonstrates shows. Um, as he formulated it, um, what kind of wood um, it is made of, which is, well, it's the literal translation of the German, um, which kind of also kind of expresses this idea that uh, there's a sort of, it reflects the morale, um, the toughness of of, uh, of the people um, that it represents. And, and this kind of um, is very much present as the sort of, uh, yeah, badge of honor in some ways um, of of the, the national pride of of the hard currency, um, 
uh, lies in the fact that it kind of demonstrates this toughness. Um, and and both references to self-discipline and toughness uh, basically to, together um, make sense as a discourse um, or of the strict father. Um, so this is um, also what George Lakoff has identified as a, a metaphorical a kind of core argument also in US Republican discourse actually. Um, so the idea um, that the moral authority of a strict father um, is, is kind of the, the desirable cultural trait. Um, the, the strict father that is on the one hand morally strong um, and constantly in self-control, uh, fighting off um, the possible internal temptations that um, he might have, and on the other hand, disciplining his uh, dependents, um, so children especially, and also the wife to some extent, um, to do the same. And by being also strong and tough enough sort of to um, confront external dangers um, or external kinds of threats. And the um, metaphorical tapestry of the Bundesbank basically invokes this uh, strict father uh, performance, both for themselves um, and as the uh, authority uh, figures uh, and as a sort of cultural moral ideal of, of, of the ideal economic behavior. And in that way, um, there is this kind of, yeah, charge of, of the discourse around the D-Mark and the, the, the German values of, um, uh, of being uh, very hardworking people and, and tough, etc., is, is kind of reflected in, in these um, metaphors. I hope I made myself somewhat clear. <laughs> yeah, extremely clear. Just for our, our listeners, something that I think is implicit in what you're saying, but just to kind of air it out, when, when you're discussing the political rhetoric and, and legal construction of the EMU through in part metaphors and metaphors of temptation versus self-discipline and hardness, um, we're we're talking about right. We're talking about fiscal capacity and what it, how it should be constituted, and we're also talking about interest rate policy, right? And we're yes. talking about you know <laughs> employing and not employing <laughs> certain kinds of people, right? So exactly. so that while we have this ge intensely gendered institution, that's a kind of it's a real legal construct. It's a real social ideological construct um, at this kind of macro political, economic, and ge even geopolitical level. But it's, it's that construct is doing real damage through, through enforced austerity, whether it's through the, you know, baked into the Maastricht Treaty, which founds the EMU, uh, or, or its individual decisions in relationship to crises, right? So, such that this kind of uh this kind of metaphorical language and talking about being self-disciplined and not being tempted is about well yeah not being tempted to to um provision jobs um that might 
might be needed for an immigrant community, right? Like this is this is dangerous, not just because the discourse itself, the metaphoricity itself is so colonial and patriarchal and exclusionary sort of as this cultural imaginary, but it's it itself is justifying all of this institution building and policy work that that is um systemically violent in its ways. So I j- I just wanted to yeah to, yeah to to spell all that out. No, thank you, um, <laughs> thank you. That's uh, um, very important. Uh, as you say, yeah, completely implicit or yeah in what I said, but uh, an important consequence basically of the of the. Uh, and and you know it's it's also related directly to the the kind of discourse that it makes it seem as if inflation was a result of of indulgence and of uh, sort of over luxurious uh, consumption practices basically of living beyond one's means and all these other um kind of narratives that belong there as well and not about you know abilities to have a, a welfare state that that uh, sort of is able to um take care of uh, of people in need and to create jobs and and to have an economy that works for everyone and all these possibilities that yeah yeah um could be uh could be uh created by a by an environment in which monetary policy could be used uh in a way um to support um yeah policy goals rather than um as a result of this um, approach of the Bundesbank being in the hands of a unelected uh, sort of uh, set of of people, mostly men, that kind of uh, make the decisions about uh, the bounds around which um, the economy and and economic policy basically has to orient itself. Um, so, as as our listeners will mm. notice as well in in your essay and in in this discussion, you focused a lot on the German specificity of the MU's hard money, metaphorical, and, and damaging discourse and, and policy as well. Um, and I wanted to maybe hover a little bit on some of these threads that I that I think I'm sensing um, in, in your answers here. Uh, at the end of uh, one of your answers, you mentioned the the, you, you, you implied uh, Max Weber's idea of the Protestant work ethic or Perhaps that there's something specifically German, even in, embedded in German history, uh, in the language about this hard money, uh, patriarchal, um, discursive and cultural uh, approach to monetary and fiscal policy. Can you talk about this history? I mean, I, I think of uh, Protestantism, a word you just used a second ago was indulgence, which... I think also links up to that that history uh, in its own way. Um, there's something there, I think that that I, I guess I, I want to hear you dive into a bit more. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, def- I definitely think there is a sort of specificity in in German history um, on that. However, I um, haven't looked at it comparatively, kind of, you know, uh, sort of directly um but uh yeah as you say there there's specifics to german culture um that one can trace this this discourse back to um 
and I have done that a little bit in the context of my um, of my PhD thesis, um, which which maybe I can also later talk a little bit about. But uh, so um, so for me, I mean, there there might also be a larger uh, kind of picture that that I'm, I'm also missing. Um, but but the two kind of uh, key processes that that I have um, identified as maybe one of the reasons why this is prevalent in in German um, monetary policy discourse, uh, in particular, um, is on the one hand uh, a sort of the valorization um, of discipline in Prussian uh, culture, and that's partly because of um, uh, Prussian state formation. Uh, right, um, uh, Gorski has this argument that um, in the the Prussian state formation under the first um, a sort of uh, kings that were central to um, the Prussian state formation and the refor reforms that kind of uh, created the bureaucratic and military structures um, of that state, um, very very much informed by Calvinism. So, so right, the protest Protestant ethic that you just mentioned uh, was very important in in the formation of the state top down, basically, um, and particularly through um, military discipline, which was uh, which the Prussian state was uh, very much a sort of innovator in 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 that respect, um, and you know stereotypically the German the the, the Prussian military was known for its um, extreme level of uh, core discipline. Um, and that kind of reflected in uh, the Prussian culture as well, where, where the military um, had a, a particular um, hegemonic quality, um, sort of representing masculinity um, uh, in that period as well. Uh, so I think that's that's sort of one, one reason why or one historical trajectory for that um kind of discourse um and then why what what does that have to do with um, central banking monetary policy um this is where i believe the weimar republic comes in so the um, experiences of hyperinflation in the weimar republic so that was basically um after the first World War in the period between 1918 and 1923, there was a um, a period of hyperinflation uh, in Germany, which where at the end of it, basically people um, had to carry bucket loads of cash to buy basic necessities because it devalued so rapidly um, after the First World War. Um, so on the one hand, there's a sort of a scare about uh, inflation there um, that that is uh, sort of often referenced as well um, uh, for as one of the reasons for uh, German sort of culture of stability, how it is called. Um, but then again, right, we could have a similar um, experience of national trauma in relation to hyperdeflation in some ways. Um, if if we look at the consequences of the um, World economic crisis of the 1930s uh, and and the sort of mass unemployment that happened in Germany um, at that time that was certainly had arguably a lot more um, sort of 
economic social consequences than hyperinflation period. Um, but in any case, um, uh, so I, I also looked at that period and the sort of um, cultural discourses around um, around that that period and around the hyperinflation um, and um, partly building on Ben Wittig's work also in relation to that. Um, and, and what we have seen just now in relation to the references, uh, to the metaphors um, about um, temptation, discipline, et cetera, um, are kind of, um, uh, how to say this, uh, basically are kind of tame in relation to the, to the um, metaphors that were used at that time, because one of the, the sort of key metaphors there was um, of uh, inflation as a witch's Sabbath. So the, the figure of, of the witch was basically mobilized um, in, uh, in relation to the experience of hyperinflation. And uh, so that's another uh, sort of um, deviant femininity that is kind of uh, seen as, as being involved in this process and this experiences of um, inflation. Uh, and that's very interesting, right? Because that uh, goes back to misogynistic representations of femininity um, as they were bound in the period of the witch hunts um, in Europe, which uh, were particularly savage also, by the way, in, in German speech speaking regions. Um, and in that context, um, witches stood for those aspects of deviant femininity that was seen as uh, threatening to the patriarchal order, as uh, Silvia Federici, for example, has argued, um, or famously argued, um, and, and witches were seen as kind of those aspects of femininity, uh, mentally weak, uh, being unsati unsatiable, unsatiably lusty, um, insubordinate, incapable of self-control, etc. So the witch kind of embodied in some ways um, uh, all these these things that uh, uh, threaten uh, patriarchal social order uh, in some ways, um, and and this mobilization of this um, of this metaphor, I argue, it also has to do um, with the time period in which this happened, because after the First World War, right, um, Germany has lost the kind of military ideal of masculinity has come. Um, has lost a lot of legitimacy uh, in that context. Um, and on the other hand, uh, there was a renewed um, a progress for, for women in, in the Weimar Republic uh, who had, during the war, taken on a lot of jobs in the, in the economy that uh, had been reserved for men previous to the war um, and were still employed in that region. So there was a lot more um, female employment. Um, there was also a lot more political rights in the Weimar Republic. They were um, granted the, uh, I mean, the the vote um, uh, suffrage, universal suffrage, was introduced in 1918 as well. Um, so I think I think it also reflects, in some ways, a, a sort of uh, anxiety about not only sort of the loss of monetary stability and monetary um, order, but also sort of the the anxiety about patriarchal order that you know, expresses itself in some ways in those um, metaphors of, of um, 
of uh, witches that kind of contribute to inflation in some ways. Um, and on the other hand, <laughs> um, just to, to finish on that, um, then sort of when inflation was uh, ended by the introduction of a new uh, currency um, and the appointment of a new central banker named Kjalmar Schacht, um, it was, uh, yeah, the kind of patriarchal military masculinity um, that he represented in that context was again um, celebrated. He was was uh, called a magician that uh, was able to to kind of reign in this this these uh, demonic forces of of the uh, uh, inflation, and kind of in that context also had a um, specific. Um, ways of vetoing certain decisions, uh, but, you know, fiscal budget decisions, um, and it kind of started very much that discourse of, you know, we have to, to limit um, the fiscal resources of the state and et cetera. So I think um, in that context, the, the attention to monetary policy and what it means culturally and these kind of associations um, uh, with ideas of masculinity on the one hand in order to, to kind of control um, or yeah, to to bring under control and some aspects that were ascribed to femininity um, is something that um, yeah also dates back to that um, historical phase. I'm fascinated by all the, the tensions and the contradictions that I think are uh, teeming beneath all of these metaphors. So certainly from the point of view of modern monetary theory, you know, hard money policy, let alone hard money metaphors, <laughs> tend to be destabilizing because they, they induce crises and they have a crisis response to crisis. So it's it's ironic, it's contradictory, it's hypocritical, in addition to being mm. violent and unjust, yeah. that it's the very, it's the construction of hard money as an institution and as a, as a metaphoric that, that is actually a massively destabilizing uh, um, element in its own right. Um, and then, oh gosh, there's so many other things I would want to ask you about. Like, for example, have you thought much about um, the the figure of the Schwarzenegger, the the black zero that uh, yeah. is so is so prized in in German banking? Yeah. Um, you know, you 
I think it's fallen out of favor in more recent years, but you know, you see these these like uh helicopter view shots of all these bankers celebrating you know, celebrating a balanced budget yeah. <laughs> um, with this, yes. you know, this like aestheticized giant zero, <laughs> like a, like a plastic yeah. sculpture yeah. Um, that they treat as a kind of fetish object. I don't know if how much you've thought about that. No, totally. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I also think about the, 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 the Eurozone or talk about the Eurozone crisis period itself, you know, in, in my uh, thesis um and and there's a lot of yeah the 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 schwarze null uh, uh celebrated when schäuble uh, kind of step was stepping back from his uh, finance ministry positions um you have you have actually the, the the prussian references that i was kind of making you know you have the bild newspaper which is the a tabloid newspaper of germany the biggest tabloid newspaper um and you know at the at a certain point when mario drag before mario draghi uh was doing the did the whatever it takes speech that kind of was a turning point in in the european crisis governance um when he was appointed they kind of depicted him with a prussian spiked helmet which is this kind of a sort of military thing uh, kind of declaring him an honorable german that was the um adhering to the monetary ideals of 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 germany and and later also during an interview uh presented him with the you know prussian spiked helmet an original one from some time uh in order to remind him of the the prussian virtues uh, that he was supposed to um inhabit and then yeah so so there's a lot of fetishism as i think the right uh word to to kind of describe this um obviously the big newspaper is not the um bundesbank itself but actually you even have um at one point um and this is shortly after the announcement of the um of the whatever it takes speech um you have the then president of the bundesbank jens weidmann um kind of deliver a speech in which a press release um, which is about um, the treatment of monetary policy in Goethe's work uh, Faust um, and where basically he cites Mephistopheles or the devil um, in in relation to uh, unbacked paper money and kind of uh, I don't have the, the exact quotation but something as you know if the, the devil says, you know, if you have unbacked paper money, you don't have to worry about um, gold or silver or anything like that. You can just indulge in in lovemaking and wine drinking and everything, and uh, sort of your problems will be solved essentially. Um, well, uh, just to just to add on that point, right? Uh, Goethe in in his life, uh, and and feel yes. free to to add to this, but is responding to this feeling of expropriation, right? And in his era, in the context of the French Revolution and, and later mm -hmm. on, and um, these the particular monetary allegory in Faust, as as you say, is is dealing with in that same model of, of trauma and then looking and searching for that hard ground 
um, and and allegorizing all of the 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 externalizations that uh, that that go on, whether it's in the figure of the witch or later on in in you know whether or the vampire or or uh, of course during the World War II and precursors with the Nazis, the the figure of the Jew. So I I but I find your exploration of this really really exciting and and fascinating. I think precisely because that history that you're bringing up all the different strands is so it's so rich with all of this detail and all of these um metaphorical i guess tensions and problems that you're playing out well well, thank you very much um yeah and you probably actually know more about uh geisha and and house than i do and i kind of realized recently that probably i should do some more studying of that of that because yeah it it also combines the, the the use of Thinking about inflation on the one hand, and a very present kind of work that that uh, yeah prominently places uh, the witch as a cultural figure um, in German discourse, and you know might also be related to why that was so present in in the Weimar Republic as a as a metaphor. Um, so yeah, basically just to say that maybe I should go into that a little bit more. But, yeah. A little bit more out of left field, but uh, I was intrigued by the story of it was it Schäuble who got uh the the spiked Prussian hat or the pickle hopper it, it was Mario Draghi Mario Draghi uh, okay um yeah. I was just very curious because I one of the things that I think another thing that's been implicit um in our conversation and uh you know maybe is worth talking about or not is the sort of phallic character of a lot of these metaphors um mm. and that that helmet of course is quite phallic so I got I got interested like in the the relative height of the spikes on top of those helmets and um, a, uh-huh. a very reliable source here. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like the uh, an AKO of May 1899 would set the height at 9.5 centimeters for officer spikes and 8.5 centimeters for all other ranks. <laughs> so um, just lots to talk about here, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I wanted to 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 also circle back to um, talking about hard money, hard leaders, and the kind of the theory of history at play here. It's, it's very tragic and romantic, and and it's zero sum where you have these hard leaders mm-hmm. managing hard money systems in order to kind of defend, but also fend off vulnerability mm-hmm. and femininity, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I, I wonder if, as we're having these conversations and talking about the EMU and your your published work, um, if it's hard it's hard not to kind of uh, in the states look at our situation and try to trace out and track the kind of um, perhaps German lineage of much of the same kind of rhetoric and discourse over here around inflation, especially today, and so. You know, for example, we talked uh, one of one of our most recent episodes with Brett Scott, and we we got into all sorts of money metaphors, and we sort of brought up the the metaphor of you know Paul Volcker at the end of the seventies um, breaking the back of inflation, um, which is an interesting also kind of displacement of or characterization of inflation. In this case, thinking of them as kind of like a mortal enemy that you want slain, maybe not so feminine, but in any case, Volcker. Uh, probably uh not who you would think of as this sort of heroic figure of history being cast in this heroic role all all of that by way of saying 
Have you done much thinking about the way that these metaphors and systems of metaphors have ramified and play at, played out in um, you know, international finance discourse? I think, well, that's very um, interesting observations. Um, the short answer to this question is not very much. Um, the, yeah, um, but Melinda Cooper, for example, has looked at the um, inflation period, like the, the 70s sort of high levels um, of inflation in the US um, and kind of traced is somewhat similar discourses kind of um, in a sort of social conservative thinkers that kind of also have seen this this as a sign of moral weakness and, and moral kind of lack of uh, uh, lack of uh, morals in in the American um, population. Um, I I can't recall any particular metaphors at, at this. Uh, this moment, but um, certainly, so there's, um, yeah, I think there's a, a lot of uh, circulation of, of this kind of thinking. I mean, Schumpeter as well is right, a um, widely regarded economist that kind of um, also contributed to the circulation, certainly, of these um, ideas. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you. Yeah, well, I would have to speculate maybe too much. It's just following uh, my, my Germanist colleagues. Um, I, I maybe y'all can help me figure out. Are there? Can we? Can we track any? Is are, are you seeing direct connections as you're asking these questions between these sort of like inherent or essential Germanness of many of these metaphors and the way that these are also found? I think commonly in other and especially U.S. contexts. Yeah, I guess Ma Max's questions about Protestantism, you know, Reformed Christianity's role um, in and beyond Prussia is is maybe one avenue. One thing I'll say is that you know, the the metaphor of whipping comes up everywhere. You know, hmm. we we you know the Ford Ford administration you know had a campaign called Whip Inflate. You know whip inflation now and mm. you know that's it in frederick's mm. article there's there's whipping all the time in uh yeah. emu discourse um one thing i'd add when i was studying economics it was very common for people to ask you are you a hawk or are you a dove yes um and there's a yeah there's some complicated there's something complicated there too with regards to I think metaphors, but right, hawk is the is the predator, and the the dove is in a sense well, as an image in 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 religion and theology is is important, but but also is is a you know a, a not not a not a predator we we just say so um, that's that's maybe another avenue uh, in the U.S. context uh, to that that where this kind of exploration would be fruitful. Um, that kind of hawk versus dove kind of uh, metaphors have also are also used in in the um, European discourse uh, around uh, central banking and uh, yeah and and sort of during the eurozone crisis there was also this kind of um, talk about Mars and Venus sort of kind of relating to um, 
a sort of an IR kind of approach, which which kind of positioned the US as Mars, so the masculine kind of foreign policy, uh, and Europe as the Venus, which was kind of trying to uh, have influence through soft powers, uh, as it's also ca called. Um, and that was kind of referenced in, in the German press uh, in relation to monetary policy being like, yeah, but in monetary policy, we are Mars and the US are Venus. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. Maybe we can situate this article in your dissertation. So it's our understanding that um, this this article is one of the fruits of your dissertation that I would presume you're turning into a book, although I don't want to speak for you. What what did what what what's the broader project of the dissertation and perhaps a future book? Yeah. Um. So basically, yes. Yeah, basically, this is correct. It's it's one. Um, basis of one, one based on one chapter uh, of my thesis and in that thesis i kind of um look i mean the focus of the thesis is the governance of the eurozone crisis and um i ask similarly to what i do in, in the article we just we're just talking about i ask what role cultural gender politics play in the governance uh discourses of the crisis um and the rationale to do this was because um, there was a lot of research about how the crisis and austerity had gendered impacts on social reproduction, on public sector employment, uh, on gender equality policy um, in that regard, um, but not so much research to understand maybe gender, if gender can also be seen as integral to the governance of the crisis. And so I ended up looking at these um, metaphors and these cultural um, kind of politics. Um, and I also ended up taking a historical approach, right, discussing these um, things we've just been talking about, both in, in relation to um, Weimar Republic um, and then the uh, period of the um, uh, making of the European Monetary Union. Um, and so in the broader argument in the thesis maybe is that, uh, right, that masculinist performative agency, as discussed, for example, today has been um, constitutive for the crisis by asserting a valorization of disciplinary masculinity um, in the governance of the European Monetary Union. Um, but secondly, that also they have uh, that the cultural gender politics um, have shaped and contested crisis governance in a contingent way as well, and that there were sort of variations in the kinds of uh, performative agency. Um, that was the degenerate performative agency that was employed. Um, so we've already talked about um, some aspects in which they have been reinforced, right? And in certain um, levels in relation to how central banking, the US on uh, the ECB have been represented, um, uh, the Prussian spiked helmet for Mario Draghi, et cetera. Um, but also there have been Variations, for example, when um, Angela Merkel uh, advanced as a figurehead of austerity with the image of the Swabian housewife, so kind of mobilizing more an image of domestic femininity as a, as a sort of virtuous um, kind of role um, to, to sort of kind of apply to austerity um, in that sense. Um, in a similar move to, to some of the discourses around um you know a post-financial crisis um 
would the crisis have happened if it would have been Lehman sisters rather than Lehman brothers and this kind of um, valuing valorization of certain kinds of femininity in this context as a result maybe of a portrayal of, of certain masculinities as well. Um, and I also look at how anti-austerity discourse, for example, um, that masculinity is is also mobilized um, with some exclusionary effects, uh, partly in anti-austerity mobilizing. Um, I look at the context of Spain, um, where uh, at first there was this kind of sense that feminism doesn't really have a place in, in this kind of anti-austerity um, uh, movement, but then at the same time, that was very strongly contested by feminist activists and kind of uh, formulating uh, centrality of social reproduction as well as a topic of, of contesting austerity. Um, so yeah, I look at, at those politics as well in my thesis. Um, and so overall, the argument basically is that gender representations do matter very much in, in the legitimation of uh, economic governance, but how they do so is principally subject to specific circumstances, but also to agency um, um, in some level. Yeah, and uh, to answer the <laughs> the other question that you have, I, I am working on a book of manuscript um, uh, on the basis of this, um, but I haven't uh, sort of formalized um, the um, uh, book contract yet. So it might be a while until um, it sees the light of the day. But we wish you luck. I, I want to follow up uh, with one one comment uh, before we move on to our last big question, which is um, yet another dimension of what you're up to that we really appreciate that really jives with our project is that while on the one hand, it 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 is important to have a critique and a refusal of austerity as as natural or given or necessary uh and zero sum trade-offs uh and 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 um other kinds of exclusionary punishing systems but it's it's not enough to have a positive political or economic language of of anti-austerity because because the world is more than just narrow political and economic language, all kinds of other language, all of language um, and, and culture is involved. So what I think what we're often trying to do and in, 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 in you're doing spectacularly in your, you know, on, on your own journey here is teasing out and, and shining a critical light on languages that remain austere, that remain exclusionary, that may remain deeply problematic even as you suggested in the in the midst of overtly anti-economic austerity campaigns yeah i i like um very much what you're saying here and and it's important to remain also self-critical and not to kind of assume a sort of coherent understanding of the economy and sort of a coherent system of um, contesting power structures within the economy with reference to one's own class position, for example, um, without also reflecting 
um, intersectional intersectionally on the one hand uh, on on sort of um, the different impacts that crises have on different subject positions, right? An important paper also on the subject of the Eurozone crisis um, by Bussell and Emiyulu um, kind of made the argument, um, whose crisis, right? If, if we talk about economic crisis, it might be experienced as a as big crisis in particular by maybe privileged subjects who are immediately kind of in at the threat of losing um out but then for very uh sort of marginalized uh, people it might not even sort of register as much because they're concerned a lot more with for example um yeah refugee status within a country and and um obviously crisis still affects um them in the long run but it also um yeah, it's always kind of important to reflect um, on the ways, on the intersectional ways in which um, mm -hmm. economic social policies uh, matter. And, and also this kind of, often there is an, in, in sort of anti-austerity movements and discourses where there's a ten tendency um, of men participating in these movements of kind of assuming this, this sort of grand analysis and grand strategy approaches that kind of have it all figured out and kind of have this um, sense of um, authoritative knowledge. Um, yeah, that doesn't need to concern itself with the details maybe or with internal processes, um, what's happening within one's own movement. Um, and that's also, yeah, one, one place where then hierarchies uh, reestablish themselves within um, contesting um, austerity and, and those those hierarchical relationships. So yeah, it's important to <laughs> be reflective of these things. Basically, absolutely, uh, Frederick Hanna. It's been wonderful having you. Uh, before we let you go, we'd like to take some time and, and chat with you about another essay you've recently co-authored and published with uh, James Brassett. Uh, it's titled "Men Behaving Badly." Representations of Masculinity in Post-Global Financial Crisis Cinema. Uh, and it was published in the International Feminist Journal of Politics in 2021. Essentially, the essay analyzes complex and shifting gendered depictions of finance in films released after the Great Financial Crisis, uh, such as Inside Job, Margin Call, The Wolf of Wall Street, and The Big Short. Can you, as we're on our way out the door, give us a window or a glimpse into how you and your co-author read the role of gender in these post-GFC films? Well, great. Thanks for thanks for asking this question as well. Um, yeah, so basically, um, what what in those films about finance um we kind of look at how they represent masculinities um and how this uh, changes uh, in some ways um over time so um, more often than not films about finance do center quite strongly on on the male protagonists uh, even in more recent films um on finance um despite maybe the uh rhetoric of of uh, Lehman sisters that kind of emphasize a bit more um, the increasing role of of women in 
uh, finance as well. Yes. Anyway, um, so we uh, try to understand how how these uh, representations of masculinities, what functions they serve in those films, and often um, in these films um, there is a kind of um, analogy basically between um, a critique of finance and a critique of um, masculinity or a critique of excessive masculinity. So um, the, the um, predatory excessive uh, masculinity, for example, take the film Wall Street and the iconic figure of Gordon Gekko. Um, it um, portrays um, financial excess in terms of uh, a, a toxic fin uh, financial system in, this, in some ways um, that is seen as, as toxic to the real economy or to the heteronormative family uh, or the fabric of society um, uh, kind of understood in the context of embedded liberalism. Um, and this toxicity of finance in this respect is represented through hypermasculinity. So masculinities of for example, Gordon Gekko, um, that are seen as extremely dominant, as greedy, as extremely uh, sexually active, promiscuous, uh, predatory, um, and in that kind of sense, embody in, in some ways this uh, disembeddedness of finance, of finance um, being represented as toxic through toxic masculinity, basically. Um, and that happens also in the, the post uh, financial crisis films to some extent. Um, the most extremely, this is the case in, in The Wolf of Wall Street, which is a film about excess and depravity from the beginning to end, basically. Um, but it also focuses quite clearly uh, on the realm of the illegal um, because it, it's actual financial fraud that is uh, described in the film. Um, and so in some ways focuses more on the behavior of the bad apples rather than um, systemic issues. And it's also uh, partly coupled with class distinction. So um, in the film, um, it's, it's about, about working class guys basically turning to investment banking um, and, and sort of adopting uh, some elements of working class culture within um, within that process. Um, and then you have a, a, a representation of um, brazen risk-taking, um, overt sexualization, et cetera, in, in, in these processes. Um, to, as a chiffre for something going wrong uh, in finance, but in, in The Wolf of Wall Street, through the distancing, through humor, and through the distancing, through class, and through um, sort of focusing on particular case of, of clearly uh, illegal um, uh, sort of practices, it's, uh, it's not necessarily as, as a sort of indicting as the Wall Street uh, film. Um, but then, um, and you have in, in the other films, Margin Call and The Big Short, you also have elements of this kind of brazen risk-taking Overt sexualization, partying as as kind of metaphors for um, excesses of finance, um, but you have also a kind of redemption of certain masculinities in those films, um, 
and with them of finance too, as we argue. So um, that's on the one hand, the sort of um, geeky masculinity that uh, sort of doesn't understand social clues and therefore it doesn't get caught up in the, in the sort of um, irrational exuberance that is portrayed um, by the um, sort of culture of, of excess of partying, etc. Um, and so um, there's this idea of this hyper-rational geeky masculinity basically that's not subject to um, these temptations if you want to connect that also to some of the stuff that we've been talking about before uh, and these masculinities don't get distracted and, and they look at the real data and therefore aren't taken in the hurt behavior uh, as Keynes would have said it or some, uh, for example um, and then turn out to be in that respect the, the real men uh, and the heroes of the films like Michael Burry in The Big Short or Peter Sullivan in Margin Call um, and on the other hand, there's a level of emotional learning also portrayed in the films, particularly in the big short, um, that the sort of good apples and um, that behave, that sort of have a moral compass still intact, that learn from past mistakes, uh, from past overworking, uh, like Baum in, in the big short. Um, and so we kind of see this, this sort of, um, redemption of some aspects of masculinity as a, as a way uh, in which um, the potential of both finance and masculinity uh, is kind of seen as right to, to kind of remain with the maybe unfortunate toxic masculinity reference earlier um, but sort of the, the kind of uh, redeeming that and, and sort of kind of portraying a, a masculinity that has come under some a level of criticism within the, the sort of kind of discourse of excessive um, predatory masculinity in the context of the financial crisis, the you know excessive risk taking, etc., um, and kind of redeeming a figure of of re-instating um, rationality of the market and of of finance through uh, references to, on the one hand, geekiness and and sort of um, yeah. Um, rationality in that uh, aspect, and on the other hand, um, of of sort of emotional learning, of of um, appropriating, if you will, some aspects of of femininity, of of kind of um, or of yeah, construed femininity, of of being emotionally more aware of one's oneself uh, into sort of a, a discourse of resilient finance, um, basically. Um, what we come up come um, out with at the end of of these movies. Well, Frederick Heine, it's been a real pleasure having you on Money on the Left. We hope at some point maybe to have you back soon. Thank you very much. It was uh, yeah, it was a great pleasure, uh, and thank you so much for these great questions and spin-offs and and yeah, um, it was a very good and pleasurable experience. Thank you very much. If you happen to be rich and you find you are left by your lover, though you moan and you groan quite a lot, you can take it on the chin, call a cab, and begin to recover on your 14 carat yacht.
Money makes the world go around, the world go around, the world go around. Money makes the world go around, of that we can be sure. I'm being poor. Money, 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 money